Good morning. That was bad. Good morning. Church is a place to be happy at, man. Jesus is risen, right? Aren't we all excited about that? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, so then when we say hello to each other, we do it with exuberance. Good. So glad to be here with you once again this morning. uh, We've been in this series uh, on the road. Uh, We've talked about the road to Emmaus, these two men, where Jesus meets them in the middle of their doubt and despair. Uh, we talked about the woman of the well last week that Jesus comes to her and he, she, he calls out her deepest, darkest secret. And when he does that, she's able to see him for who he is. And she runs into the town. And she says, let me tell you about a man who knows everything about me. And as a result of that, the town invites him in and they come to know the saving grace of Jesus Christ. The Samaritans come to know the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Super powerful uh, message. And I hope that some of these have been resonating and landing in your heart, that you've been wrestling through these things, that this isn't just a Sunday morning experience, but a, a, an experience in which the scriptures are carried throughout the day and the way you live your life, and it would transform you. So uh, when, I, uh, when the kids were a little bit younger, uh, I have three kids. I have a 15-year-old, I have a 12-year-old, and I have a five-year-old little girl. Um, when the two boys were a little younger, they used to have these things that they would get at school called kachas. And basically what they were was like when a teacher caught them doing something really cool, they would sign this thing and, and they would call it a kacha and they would turn it in for points and get candy or something like that. Anyway, so they used to get kachas for everything and they would get, you know, like kacha, you know, picking up trash on the schoolyard, things like that. And so they would bring them home to me. Like I'd come in the door and they're like, dad, look, a kacha. And I was like, yay, way to go, buddy. But after a while, it just kind of got annoying because they were getting kachas for everything. Kacha flushing the toilet, like kacha tying your shoe, you know, and the boys are bringing them up to me and it's kind of underwhelming after a certain point of view, like, yeah, buddy, come on, guy, like, you should know how to flush a toilet. You shouldn't get a kacha for that, okay? But they were just so excited and they wanted me to validate them and tell them how great and I was just a really bad dad. And I was like, you know what? Grow up. You know, that, that's terrible. I'm repenting. It's okay. It's okay. You know, and, and, uh, and, and, and I was like, gosh, this drives me crazy. Hey, by the way, do you know that they have a trophy for participation? Like kids show up and they just participate and they get a trophy. Is that not bo- is mine the only one that that bothers? Like your kid is terrible at soccer. Like, he doesn't work for it, and he got a trophy? Are you kidding me? Little Bobby, go get some work done. <laughs> a participation trophy. He's got a whole room full of participation trophies, and he's terrible at all the sports, and he feels validated. It drives me nuts. And I started to go, like, why am I so frustrated by this? Why is this bothering me? Because I realized it was me. I want a participation trophy. Like, I like... I clean the kitchen, and I look at my wife, and I go, "Ah." look what I did for you, and she's like, yeah, it's called being a part of the family unit. (laughs) What do you want? Like, hey, way to go. Now go tell, help the kids get in bed, you know? You know, I want a participation award. Where's my trophy? You know, but we do this at work. You know, we, we, we go, and we do a big project, and the clients are happy, and our boss says nothing, and we're like... He doesn't like me. I'm so, I hate this place. Why, I, you know, and then we'd go and find other jobs or whatever. We do this all across the board. The scariest place where we do this is we do it with God. 
We do it with God. Look, God, I read my Bible. Look, God, I prayed. You see, I've been praying a lot. I got in real deep this week. Okay? I tossed you, tossed you some money this week. I'm just saying. You know? Hasn't that left you alone? Empty? Some of you show up to church every Sunday morning just because you're supposed to, or you feel like you're supposed to. Throw, you feel like you're throwing one up to God. Like, look, I'm, I'm obeying you. I don't like it, but I'm coming, you know? It's scary that we live our lives like this, and, and we're expecting a return on investment from God. Like, we're doing this, and so God, you gotta do something back for me. And so here's an important statement I would love for you to wrap your heads around and hopefully work through this week and right now in this moment, that our greatest successes and failures hinge on what we do with God's love. They hinge on it. It is a free gift from him. And so often we're trying to micromanage that and go, no, 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 no. I'm gonna go work for, I'm gonna go do this so that I can feel more of that or I can feel more validated by you, God. And he's like, all your good deeds are as filthy rags, Isaiah says. And yet, for so many of you, that is the way in which you're trying to come to God and approach God. And I pray through the reading of the scriptures this morning that you'd be broken of that and you'd be convicted of that and that you would just be honest with yourself this morning because I feel like that's what we should do when we approach the word of God. It's just going, I wanna learn. And so that's my heart this morning. My heart is that we say and we come to the scriptures and we, we wanna learn. So if you have your Bibles, we're gonna go to Luke, Luke 19. Uh, Luke, uh, like John, so John's an eagle, historically been seen as an eagle. Luke has been seen as like an ox. Uh, because Luke is, wants to, he's a doctor, he wants to help you understand uh, specifically detailed things about who this Messiah is. And, and for Luke, the reason why it's an ox is because the sacrifice of this Messiah, this Jesus, is important. And if you remember the sacrificial systems, they would sacrifice oxes. But he also wants to show us uh, service and strength. Those were all attributes of what oxes would do during that time. So, so Luke is strategically helping us understand these things at, about the Messiah as we come into the scripture. And this section of scripture that we're actually in, uh, chapter 9 uh, through 19, is called the Gospel of the Outcast, to the Outcast. And it's a series of stories in which Jesus is meeting with un, uh, meeting with people that nobody really meets with if you're a Jew. And he touches them with love them. And this is the second to the last story in that, uh, that, that, or that story in which uh, Luke is trying to help us un- understand. So let's go. Zacchaeus, the tax collector we're gonna talk about this morning. Uh, Luke 19, chapter one, or verse one, sorry. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was the chief tax collector and was very wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being short man, he could, he, uh, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree to see him. And since Jesus was coming that way, when, uh, since Jesus was coming that way, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up to him and said, Zacchaeus. Come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. One, um, so he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone. He's gone to be a guest, a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said, 
to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay it back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this home. Because this man, too, is the son of Abraham. This is a powerful statement. For the son of man has come to seek and save the lost. This is the word of God, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Okay, we're going to work through this thing verse by verse. You guys okay with that? You ladies okay with that? Thumbs up? Thumbs up? Yeah, we're good? Okay. Verse 1, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through it. The interesting thing about this moment is this is the part of the narrative in which Luke is detailing by detail, by detail, by detail, Jesus' journey and encounter with people as he heads to Jerusalem to die on the cross. So this is a moment in which Luke is going, Jesus is heading through Jericho to go to Jerusalem, but he's there in Jericho for a very specific reason. Jericho was a resort time. How many of you have been to Palm Springs? Raise your hands. Yes. Uh, It's like the California vacation spot. Um, So uh, Jericho is much like Palm Springs. It's kind of this oasis in the desert. Historians say it actually smelled beautiful and good. The the, the town was kind of revigorated um, by King Herod. And so um, so anyway, so Palm Springs, or, or uh, Jericho is like Palm Springs. Uh, Jericho is one of the greatest areas because of its affluence and its wealth uh, for taxation. Verse 2, a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. We get introduced to this man named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector, and he was wealthy. Remember, Luke's trying to help you understand details. So first detail, his name is Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus' name means clean and pure, which is in complete juxtaposition to his profession, which is a tax collector. And not only is he a tax collector, but he is the chief tax collector. And the Jews hate them. They despise them. And the reason why is because um, Rome hired these guys. And these guys would make these deals with Rome. And then what would happen is they would give Rome uh, their money. And then they would upcharge the people in order to get money back. And so they were looked at as thieves. And they looked at them as infidels because they were partnering with Rome who was against God. And against God's plan and against God's people. And so uh, these tax collectors, the chief tax collectors, especially were kind of shysters and the people hated them and they were probably the most despised hated people in, in town and he was kind of permitted to do whatever he wanted as far as upcharging the people can you imagine how many of you did your taxes i hope everyone puts their hands up right okay because the irs is watching you anyway um and what if, what if your tax, the person who does your tax person or the program that you use said, hey, you're supposed to get $2,000 back. Just kidding. I'm actually going to charge you $2,000. Would you be okay with that? Do you think you would go back to that person who prepares your taxes? No. Do you think he and you would be buddies? No. You would probably do what? You'd probably be like, I hate you. Okay? I know. We're just being real here this morning, Right? We're just saying, like, I don't like that guy at all. Okay, so you can understand why they don't like him, why they don't like Zacchaeus. And, and, and what's really interesting here is that he chose this life. He chose this life of exile and hate. Have you ever, have you ever wondered why? Why would a guy choose a profession in which the people in which he lives with hate him. And so he would have lived kind of on the outside of town. He would have lived in his home. He wouldn't have come out for fear that the people would kill him. So we get into verse 3 and 4. And it says, 
He wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree. So he could see him since Jesus was coming from far away. Here's a man who has spent his entire life acquiring wealth and living in isolation. He has achieved the American dream, by complete, but he is completely and utterly alone. And all he wants to do is he just wants to see Jesus. I just want to see Jesus. Here's the interesting thing about this passage. Is we tend to read this passage and we tend to look at it and we tend to go, yeah, 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 that's a rich guy, of course. Like, he doesn't get it. And so, but what we don't ever do is go, I'm the rich guy. Like, he, here, here's some, a little bit, can, I just, can we be honest for a second here? You are the richest people in the world sitting in this room. If you, if you have a bed, if you have fresh drinking water, if you have a home, if you have a car, if you ha- live in a place of any way, if you have a pillow, if you have extra changes of clothing, you are in the top 5% in the world. You are rich. And this story is about you. It is about our country. Matthew 19, 24, and this is a problem. Matthew nineteen twenty four says, again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The problem is the hardest people to understand the life-giving grace and love of Jesus Christ is us because we are rich. Because what happened was during the Enlightenment, this period of time, guys like Voltaire and, and guys like Immanuel Kant started coming up with this idea that, hey, we don't really need God anymore, that I can create the utopia in which I want to create. And so individualism starts coming along. And all of a sudden, I can create my own destiny. I can make things happen. No longer do we trust in the divine and his divine plan and his sovereignty over us as individuals, as his children. No, I can create it. I can make it happen. And so we start on this journey and through the industrial age and through the age of science, we start to build our white picket fences We start to create a world in which we are in charge, where we are in control, and most everything we do has an ROI attached to it. How does this benefit me? That is the condition of most of our hearts. That is the environment and the culture in which we find ourselves in. We can fulfill whatever we want. That is the American dream, true or not true. You have the opportunity to do whatever you want. But what has come as a result of that is we have no concept of how to do community. No concept of it. Because community means I need to get something in return for this. The way we treat our churches is I come to this church and I expect that the speaker better be good. That the worship better be good or I'll just find another church. I expect in my friendships and in my marriage certain things and if they don't work out, I'll find other ones. 
Isn't that true? Isn't that an indictment on our culture? Isn't that the individualism that has been steeped so deeply? And so you can resonate with a guy like Zacchaeus who is all alone in his affluence. That he has everything he could ever need and he is utterly alone because it's all about him. See, we don't know how to honor both old and young the old look at the young and they, and they go, oh, you're just idealistic. And you're trying to change everything. The young come in and they, they look at the old and they go, oh, you're obsolete. You're irrelevant. We create these categories in which we place people in. And you look at the picture of Acts 2 and it says in Acts 2 that there was not a need among them. Why? Because it was about Jesus. It wasn't about them. That's why they did community. That's why so many people were drawn to Jesus Christ because they did it for Jesus. They didn't do it for themselves. Church isn't for you. It's for Jesus. Your friendships aren't for you. They're for Jesus. Your marriage is not for your own personal satisfaction. It's for Jesus. It's for the glory of God. But because of our individualism, we find ourselves alone empty, constantly pursuing after more, constantly trying to make it better, constantly trying to build different picket fences, and we are drowning in our insecurities. And we don't know how to love unconditionally because for most of us, loving means I have to get something in return. If I actually put that effort out, you better do something back to me. When Patty and I were first married, I was 21 when I got married, when Patty and I were first married, I would say I love you all the time to her, right? Because that seems right, right? We're in the honeymoon phase. That's what you do. You say I love you. So I was like, I love you, I love you. And she'd say, uh-huh, back to me. And I'd say like, I love you, babe. And she'd be like, uh-huh. I'm like, what gives? We're supposed to be honeymooning the junk out of this thing right now. Like, what's going on? You're supposed to be like, I love you too. You're the best thing ever happened to me, right? And she would just be like, mm-hmm. So one night, we're laying in bed, and I'm like, I'm gonna romance the junk out of this whole thing. And so I was like, you were like the moon to my ocean. You were like the air in my lungs and I have life. <laughs> I love you so much. And she said, uh-huh. And I was like, what is your problem? I'm a loving husband. How do you not see that I'm just loving you so much? And she goes, because your I love you is for you. It's not for me. She said, your I love you is about you. It's not about me. You see, because you're insecure about our marriage. And the only way for you to feel good about you is to always get it in return. And you know I love you. I committed to you on that altar that I love you. And I will love you for the rest of my life, God willing. But I will not give in to your insecurity. And see, here's the scary thing. Most of us live our lives that way. Most of us are just walking through this world through this individualistic lens of going, fill me up, fill me, I need, I need, I want, I want, fill me, fill me, fill me, need me, fill me, fill me. And we're just doing whatever we can to get something in return because we know something's wrong. We know something's incomplete inside of us and we're doing everything we can in our own abilities to fill it up. And so you can look at your greatest successes in life and your greatest failures in life and look at love and say it hinges on what you do with God's love. 
your greatest failures as a result of not understanding the love of the Father for you. And so you, you get Zacchaeus, you get why he's away, because he's created this American dream for himself, this utopia in which he has everything he wants, but he is alone and destitute. A.W. Tozer says this, the reason why so many are still troubled, still seeking, still making little forward progress is because they haven't come to the end of themselves. We are still trying to give orders and interfering with God's work within us. So what is it? He runs. It says that he runs. Why does he run? Why does this rich, affluent man run? He runs because he just wants to see Jesus. And, and then he's like, there's a problem. I'm too short. I can't see him. I, I need to see him. And so he, he starts up this tree. He climbs up this tree. Why does this man do this? Because he just wants to see a man who loves unconditionally. He's heard that he, he called Matthew, a tax collector, to be one of his disciples. How could this man love this way? I just need to see him. And so he's willing to humble himself just to see this Jesus. And the only picture I can give to you is this. Imagine Donald Trump running to, get a, to see Jesus. Imagine Donald Trump climbing up a tree just because he needs to see what real love looks like. It's mind-boggling, right? Like, I can't even see. You can see the desperation this man is in. I'm so alone. I just need to see a man who really loves. Psalms 42.1 says this, as a deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. I'll paraphrase and say this, as a dying deer is searching in the woods, he's about to die, looking for something uh, just to make him feel whole, to make him bring him life, so you and I, so our souls are longing after just seeing the Father and his love. That we, we, we're wandering this earth trying to find something to fill this thing that only Jesus can do it. And we just want a picture of the Messiah. We just want to see that he's real. So our soul longs. Is that you? Do you long for Jesus? Because Zacchaeus did. He longed to see something that he'd not seen. He had been living in his hubris exile for so long that he just had to see Jesus. And so he puts himself in this place where he runs, which he would have never ran. And he climbs a tree like a child because he just wants to see love. He just wants to see Jesus. Verse five and six, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up to him. Zacchaeus came down immediately and, he, and, and, I, and Jesus said, I must stay at your house today. So he came at once and welcomed him gladly. Imagine this moment, this poor, desperate man in a tree the one I just want to see him. All the people are surrounding Jesus. They're all surrounding Jesus. And they're going, hey, heal us, prophet. Heal us, rabbi. Teach us, rabbi. Feed us, rabbi. Jesus walks and he walks and he looks up and he sees Zacchaeus and their eyes meet. And Zacchaeus is up here and he's going, oh, he sees me. And then he says, come down. 
I want to be with you. I want to go to your home. And you're, you're like, not, not me. I'm, I'm bad. I'm like really bad. Like all these other people, they're good. They obey the 613 laws and, and they make the right kind of sacrifices. I'm, I'm a nobody. I'm not even a son of Abraham because, because I'm a chief tax collector. I, I, I can't. How could you call me? Jesus says, I must come and be with you. In the same way he had to go to Sakar to meet this Samaritan woman is the same reason why he has to meet this man. The Holy Spirit has called him because Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And the sick, they need doctors, not the healthy. So all the other people are wandering around trying to get something from Jesus. Zacchaeus just wants to see him and Jesus is like, I want you. I'm gonna meet you in your misery. And I want to have food with you. He does the same to you. He came to you and he loves you. He meets you in that moment where I just want to see, I've been trying my whole life to be good. I've been trying my whole life to achieve something. I know I'm empty. I, I know I'm not full. And Jesus says, I want to come to you. Get down from the tree. Get down from there because Jesus sees his heart. The people surrounding the prophet are asking all these things, but he sees this man's heart and he says this, abide with me. Abide, be with me and I wanna be with you. Andrew Murray says this, one of my favorite writers, he says abiding in Christ is meant only for the weak and is so beautifully suited for their feebleness. It does not demand the doing of some great thing or that we lead a holy and devoted life. No, it's simply weakness, entrusting itself to the mighty one to be kept, the unfaithful one, casting self on the one who is altogether trustworthy and true. This man, Zacchaeus, has nothing to offer Jesus. He is awful and vile and everybody knows it. And Jesus is like, I want you. And somehow we look at Zacchaeus and we go, Zacchaeus isn't me, he's you. You're the vile person sitting in a tree having done everything you possibly can to prove that you're good enough and you know you're not. That's why you feel alone. That's why we feel abandoned at times. That's why we're trying to fill it up with everything else in this world can give us. And Jesus is like, come down from the tree. Come experience me. Stop staying up there. Verse seven, all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. How can he do that? Can you believe that? He went with him? Does he know who he is? Oh my gosh, that guy's the worst. Oh, I hate him so much. He took all that money from him. How could this Jesus do that? The illogical grace of Jesus will always be offensive to people who can't understand the extreme love of Christ. Will always the extreme and illogical grace of Jesus Christ will always, will always be offensive to people who can't understand the extreme love of Christ. I want you to look at this picture here. For some of you, that created a vile heart in you. Got your 
is Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy murdered 100 people, 30 of them were women, violently killed them. Two weeks before he's to be put to death by the electric chair, James Dobson goes and shares this love and this grace. Ted tells him about this Jesus who calls sinners out of trees. Ted Bundy comes to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, receives that, and will be worshiping next to you great church followers in heaven, praising the great name of our Savior and Lord. And that either gets you excited or it makes you mad. Because you think, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. No, 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 no. It's if you're good, if you do a bunch of good stuff, like that's how, we're, no, 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 no. See, what we love in the West here is we love boxes. We love categories. We like to go, there's bad people, and then there's good people, there's really good people, and then there's pastors somewhere in there, right? Like all these really good people, and then there's these bad people, and they deserve what they got coming to them. But here you have a mass murderer who will stand next to you before the throne of God and you will raise your hands in the same way he has. Because you both came to the cross the same way. The problem is you think you're better. We think we're better. That's why we're still stuck up in the tree. Because we're still trying to prove that we're good. And what does Zacchaeus do? He comes down. And he stood up and he said, Lord... Lord, here I am now. I'll give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay it back four times the amount. You see, received grace turns to repentance, generosity, and restitution. Jesus doesn't come to him and go, here are the five things you have to do before you can receive my love. He just goes, come. Come down off of that tree. I want to go to your house. I want to eat with you. And I want to display my love in front of this whole community. He does the same with you. And what does Zacchaeus do? He goes, I just want to be generous. Not because I, I feel like I owe anything, anything, but because I've met love. I've met real love. I've met real grace. He's not expecting a return on investment. He just loves me for who I am. So he comes down. And he gives half of his possessions to the poor, which would have been overly generous. He pays, a, he pays people back that he's robbed, these white-collar crimes that he did four times what he stole from them, which was the price a thief would pay. His actions are purely derived by a divine love and grace. That's what happens when you meet Jesus. Max Lucado says, grace is, God, grace is God as heart surgeon, cracking open your chest, removing your heart, poisoned as it is with pride and pain, and replacing it with his own. Oswald Chambers says, true surrender will always go beyond natural devotion. Verse 9 and 10, Jesus said to him, today, as a result of you receiving the great love and grace of Jesus Christ today, salvation has come to this home, and this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. It's the linchpin of Luke's gospel message. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, is that Jesus comes for people stuck in trees. And he says, I want to abide in you. And you can abide in me. This is why God sent his son. This was his entire mission. It was not that you deserved it. Or not that you were good enough. Or not that you did anything to impress him. He found you in a tree. And he called you his son and his daughter. Will you receive this great gift that he's given to you? Will you continue 
to live out this life of atrophy that does not return anything to you but void. When the boys are little, I, I've, I, got, I got the two boys, and, and when they were younger, I had this tree next to my office, and they used to climb it. And uh, so this one time, they're, they're climbing the tree and going, and going up it, and, and I look to my younger son. My younger son's kind of like this crazy kid. He rides dirt bikes and, you know, goes on half pipes, all that crazy stuff. So he's up there, and, and I said, jump, Cooper, jump. And he goes, wee, and he jumps down, and I caught him, and ah, I mean, it's a pretty high up tree. And so I, I looked to my other son, and my other son's very analytical, very logical, and I'm like, come on, buddy, jump. And he's like, nope. No, 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 no. You are easily distracted. <laughs> You'll be like, ah, squirrel, ah, and he's gonna jump and break all his bones. That's how he has it playing out in his mind. And so I'm going like, bud, you can trust me, just jump. I, wh- uh, why would I want anything bad to have you? Just jump. And he's like, no, I can't. And I'm like, buddy, I love you. Come on, just jump. I get that. How else are you gonna get down? He goes, I don't know, I'll figure it out. I was like, no, you gotta jump, just trust me. And he said, I don't, I don't trust you. I said, buddy, just jump. Just trust me. Over and over, wrestle, wrestle, wrestle. And he finally jumps. And I caught him. And I put him on the ground. And we start high-fiving each other. He's screaming, you did it. You did it. You actually caught me. I can't believe you. You, (laughs) As I say it now. Yeah, but he's like, you caught me. I can't believe you did. I said, of course I did. He goes, you are who you said you would. You did what you said you would do. And I said, of course. This is our problem with God in heaven. We don't trust him. We don't believe he's a good father. We don't believe he loves that way. We don't believe that grace can be extended to us in our darkest places. Like we, we don't believe in a God who meets us on a road when we're like, I don't even believe you're real. I don't even believe you exist. You completely messed up the plan. We don't, we don't trust that a God could love us in the middle of that. We don't, we don't believe that a God could meet us in our darkest moments of betrayal. In our moments where we've denied him. In our moments where we're sinners and we feel it and we know those addictions. But we keep hiding and we keep hiding. We keep putting those things in a box because God couldn't love me that way. Because we don't trust God the Father that way. We don't believe he's that good. We don't believe he's that graceful and that loving. And we don't believe that he could pull us out of this tree. That even in the midst of our depravity, in the midst of our sin, that he would go, I want you. That I love you. You are the reason I sent my son to die in the same intentionality that I put in knitting you together in your mother's womb, I put together a plan in which I redeem you, that you are my son and that you are my daughter, but you keep trying to impress me. You keep trying to say that my grace isn't sufficient. Stop it. Open your arms and receive the great grace and love that God has to offer you. Some of you believers have been sitting in that weight for your whole life and it's killing you. You don't have joy, you don't have peace because you're still trying to prove that you're good enough. 
You're still trying to make penance for all the sins you've had in your past. Stop it. Receive the free grace that he gives to you. Don't cheapen it. Receive it. Some of you don't know Jesus and you think you're not good enough. And you're hanging out in a tree. He's like, I came for people like you. I came for everyone. And that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus. Receive the gift of the Father. Receive his love as he meets and intersects your life on this road so that you can run the race that he has put before you. Because when you come to understand the saving love of Jesus Christ as an individual, it doesn't just affect you. That love that you receive is not only an individualistic love, it's a communal love that you now give back to this church, that you give back to this community and transform it. Isn't that something you want? Isn't that what the good news of the gospel is? Other than just coming to church and reading our Bible and praying? It's so much more transformative than that. That's what he wants for you, church. That's the life he's given to you, the great gift. Will you receive it? Get out of the tree. Just go, I want you. I want all of you. That's all I got. I laid it all on the line. Because that's my life. It's my story. It's who I am. And I, I'm broken and I'm busted up, but I only know Jesus. I really, truly do. This is not just something that pastors say because we're paid to do it. It's all I know. He has robbed the things of my life like my son, and he's given me new life because that's who he is. I want it for you so bad. I want you to see his love. I want you to experience it. I want us to stop playing this Christian game, and I want us to experience the freedom in Christ through his death and his resurrection. Amen? All right, let's be different, church. Love you.